This is a Federal News Network podcast. Those recent ransomware attacks have some members of Congress looking to boost the budget and the authority of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. That colonial pipeline attack has lawmakers concerned about CISA's ability to defend critical infrastructure. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, the Biden administration is already seeking a big budget boost for CISA. Some members think it's not enough? Right. Well, the administration is seeking $2.1 billion for CISA in fiscal year 2022, and that's about a $110 million increase over this year. CISA also got $650 million in emergency funds under the American Rescue Plan. But some lawmakers like John Katko, ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee, he told Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas that CISA needs more. Given the gravity of the situation, given my discussions with folks at CISA, it's clear to me that they need more resources. And I would ask you to reconsider and and speak to the administration about plussing this up. We're going to have to do this in the appropriations process. You you are the one that's going to be the guy that's going to be the cheerleader for CISA. And a 6% increase, given what's going on with cybersecurity in this country right now, just isn't cutting the mustard. And that's a Republican talking. That's right. I mean, Catco says he wants to uh, raise CISA's budget to about $5 billion annually in the, quote, not-too-distant future. So that's more than double what the Biden administration is proposing for next year. Now, Mallorca said he's more than happy to be the cheerleader for CISA, but um, he, he didn't commit to any sort of major increase like that. He says CISA needs to spend the money it's already received as wisely as possible. All right. And let's talk about the authorities. What are some of these lawmakers concerned about when it comes to what CISA is able to do, I guess, legally? Well, so a lot of members of Congress and and CISA itself, they want it wants to be the single point of contact, the single voice for all cyber issues facing the United States. Um, A lot of people use the quarterback analogy. But uh, one issue they face is that critical infrastructure operators largely don't have to report cybersecurity incidents to CISA. In the Colonial Pipeline incident, for example, they reported the incident to a third-party cybersecurity provider, um, FireEye, and they actually declined CISA's follow-up for further assistance. So CISA officials say they're not trying to replace a company like FireEye, but what they want companies to do is tell them as soon as possible about an incident so that they can say, hey, this is what we see across the federal government, and then they can take that information and share it with other companies who might be at risk of a cyber attack. So after the colonial hack, the Transportation Security Administration made it mandatory for pipeline operators to report cyber incidents to CISA. Lawmakers are also considering some legislation to expand mandatory breach notifications like that across critical industries. Yeah, this was actually part of the original setup of DHS in the first place, to have different sections of industry that operate critical infrastructure go to their counterpart at the federal level. It could have been the Energy Department, the Transportation Department, or mostly DHS, but I guess nobody's ever done that, and it's never really taken hold. So what would TSA's role here be? Transportation, they are concerned with more than just human beings in airplanes, huh? That's right. They're worried about oil and pipelines, and so they regulate pipeline security, including cybersecurity. And right now, it's voluntary for pipeline operators to submit to cybersecurity reviews from TSA. So again, with the Colonial Ransomware case, um, that company had repeatedly delayed a voluntary cyber assessment just prior to the May attack, and that concerns lawmakers like Benny Thompson, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. My concern is that if there's no regulatory requirement for companies to allow TSA or whomever to look 
at their security protocols, they'll tell you to come back next month. They'll tell you to come back in six months. I'm just concerned that given the expansion of ransomware attacks, a voluntary system without some compliance authority mandated uh, puts us at risk. That was uh, Benny Thompson, chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. And we're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so what does all this mean for CISA? Nothing is really carved out in stone at this point with respect to the budget for 2020. Well, Congress is really pushing on CISA to, at the very least, work more closely with regulatory agencies like TSA on cybersecurity standards for things like critical infrastructure. And CISA says that they are indeed doing that. And Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas also said that DHS is looking across critical infrastructure to see where they can use administrative tools and regulatory tools to improve cybersecurity. But you're really seeing this increasing signal from lawmakers that CISA has to be more involved in regulating the cybersecurity of privately owned critical infrastructure ensuring those companies are up to par in protecting their networks. And I guess one of the questions some lawmakers will have, as well as those in industry, is if the sections of industry with critical infrastructure follow those regulations, are they absolved from lawsuits for a breach that might happen after they've been in compliance with what the government demands? I imagine that's a big sticking point here. Yeah, there's a whole range of sticking points, of course, with any sort of cybersecurity uh, regulation program here. And that's something that, you know, members of Congress will have to work out with industry. CISA will have to work out with industry as part of their public-private partnership model and uh, see how things can be improved. So from your standpoint in following this, do you get the sense that given the budget request that the Biden administration has put out now, and it's been out there for about a month, and Congress is just sort of gathering to deal with it, that there might be a plus up for CISA versus what the administration has requested, which is what John Katko was saying. There certainly, I don't see there being any sort of cuts to CISA, given the the ransomware attacks that the country has experienced in, in recent weeks. And I'm not sure if John Katko will get the $5 billion or close to that that he's looking for. But you could certainly see broad bipartisan support for CISA across the board. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, 
that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive. Uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. 
That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, 
But we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.